listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I get to be the host, and I'm Rick Enlow. I'm right here in the Pacific Northwest with President of Leadership Foundations, Dave Hillis. Happy Advent season, Dave. And to you as well, Rick. Advent is probably, um, yeah, I think it's probably close to my favorite church season of the year. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, we just last week, some of our uh, Jewish brothers and sisters uh, started lighting the menorah. So, you know, it's a, it's a cool time mm-hmm. of the year. Um, you know, we're, we're in a, uh, a kind of bringing our podcasting for the year into a landing spot that is uh, right next to where we, where we took off, which is talking about <laughs> the city as playground. And uh, we've, uh, we've been um, kind of approaching that from some different uh, angles and, 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 kind of illustrating and, and discussing with, with different leadership foundation, uh, local leadership foundation uh, individuals. And so it's it's kind of a great thing to be able to end our year with this big audacious idea of imagining cities as playgrounds. And uh, we've, you know, we've, we've actually, uh, you know, kind of broken it down and, and come through uh, sort of a, a progression of, of the history of, of that phrase and, and um, you know, what, what kind of lives uh, beside and beneath it. But I wanted today to uh, just ask you uh, about some personal experiences, you know, when you have been mm-hmm. in a city and uh, this, this city as playground uh, metaphor actually, you know, comes alive. And I yeah. know that you have the privilege of, of going, you know, uh, you know, you've been in a lot of cities, but just kind of, kind of hit a few, if you can remember. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. I mean, part of it goes way back, even before <clears throat> I think I began to think about a city as a playground. And it was, you know, watching uh, life happen. And like, for example, what was it about, you know, a certain family whose kids, um, for whatever reason, seemed to turn out, you know, relatively speaking, well, and another family that didn't. And what was it about you know, uh, this company that seemed to flourish um, and people couldn't wait to get up in the morning to go to work and another one that it was just drudgery. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes what I recognized was it came down to, again, the way it was perceived, right? The way it was understood, the way it was internalized, Um, i.e. going back to the family, you know, those kids knew uh, that, you know, Rick and Marv, you know, adored them. Uh, and it was, it was kind of looking at it through that prism that did a lot of the work uh, with regard to somebody, uh, an organization flourishing. So, you know, with that, it's kind of almost a, a basic <clears throat> sort of anthropological kind of position. Um, and then as I begin to do work in the city, uh, it just began to fascinate me. Well, could a city uh, in some ways be a part of that same kind of process, mm-hmm. right? That that it was seen in a certain way and that it could then be, you know, uh, something that could grow into itself, its best self rather than not. Um, <clears throat> so that, that was the question. Part of the way the answer was given to me um, Rick was, uh, and we've talked about this character before, um, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, mm-hmm. Chesterton, to remind our listeners, was, you know, this really uh, famous uh, journalist living at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, 
um, was prolific uh, by way of both his columns and his books. Uh, but there was a particular book um, called Orthodoxy that uh, I got a hold of when I was in uh, in college, actually. And uh, again, I should preface this by saying for those that are interested in trivia about uh, someone like G.K. Chesterton, he was probably about five foot eleven, six foot, probably close to four bills, as in four hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, loved uh, his beer, uh, you know kind of caroused on Fleet Street, which famously in London was where all the, the journalists, you know, kind of lived and was just uh, in some ways almost notorious for being able to write just about anything. It could be theology. It could be, you know, uh, agrarian patterns of how you raise cows. It could be, you know, the arts. It could be anything. And so at one point in his life, he wrote a book called Heretics, which effectively took the leading intellectuals of uh, London at that time. So people like Rudyard Kipling, George Bernard Shaw, and attacked each one of their theories, their their worldviews. And uh, it was a wonderful book that really was piercing and, you know, kind of in some ways, although Chesterton had this great sense of humor, but somewhat attacking. So at the end of it, uh, George Bernard Shaw essentially said, well, I will worry about, you know, my worldview when Chesterton gives us his. And so orthodoxy was that answer, right? And so here is here is my view. And uh, he writes this book. In it, there's a particular chapter where he, at the end of a, a chapter, writes about how cities grow great. Uh, and one of his lines is something like, you know, uh, People didn't love the city because she was great. She was great because they loved her. Anyway, so uh, I remember putting that book down, Rick, and going, well, wow, there's something there. Um, mm-hmm. And it began to really, I think, shape my sense of, yes, it's possible. Uh, that along with, you know, working with people on the streets, uh, trying to produce good programming, I mean, all the stuff that you got to do, that ultimately uh, a city is going to be changed uh, by a group of people who decide to actually love her. Um, and so that was the the initial sort of thrust for me, Rick, with regard to this. It was then a few years later that, you know, you run across against something, right, that connects with Chesterton. And in this case, it was uh, uh, Campbell, the famous mythologist, who said this. He said, you know, if you want to change the world, change your metaphor. Mm -hmm. And again, I just remember sitting with that statement. And I don't know if you've had these, Rick, and maybe our listeners have as well, but you feel like you run across something and all of a sudden it's like you're looking back over your shoulder because you were one way before you read it and now you are another way because of having read it. And it was there that I, I begin to kind of go, okay, what, what is that? What is that for LF? You know, what is that for, for my work? And that was the seedbed of saying, you know, it's, it's the way we see we love cities and we see and love them as playgrounds, uh, mm-hmm. even in the midst of all their sharp edges. Um, LF people characteristically, and you've been around, Rick, long enough to see this. Uh, when you're with an LF person in a city, they actually want to be there. 
right? <laughs> they they <laughs> will walk through the place and point out things in such a way that you kind of go, they're delighting in this place. Mm-hmm. And so you'll go full circle, just like a young kid or like you and I now have grandkids, you know, they delight in part because we are delighting in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, again, is, is ultimately my, you know, sort of path, I think, to this idea of city as playground. Is yeah, and it, I remember, I think, uh, tell me if I got this right, but in orthodoxy, uh, Justerson does paint a picture of, uh, you know, um, I remember he tells a story about when you're a kid and you just have a stick and you're just hitting the grass with a stick. You're just, yeah. just you know, you're just doing it. Not, and, it, it, and it's because there is no reason for it that it it is reasonable. And then he talks <laughs> about how right. a person who's insane would never have that kind of whimsy. And That's so he right. already kind of packaged the idea of, uh, of, you know, a playground versus, you know, always, you know, at on task. And then I That's also right. remember that, uh, you know, Dorothy Sayers, who was a uh, contemporary of yep. Chesterton's. In fact, I remember yep. one time I read that, uh, uh, you know, the women's place was usually uh, after dinner to, uh, you know, retire to the, to the kitchen and, and Sayers, would grab her brandy and head out with Chesterton and, you know, and she, she was quite the writer too, but I mean, her, her entire uh, book uh, about uh, um, the God of whimsy. Yep. You know, I think that those are all reflective of this, this metaphor. And uh, yeah. 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 It, it it really is. In fact, I, uh, I, you know, one of the little perks of my job is when I do get to go visit these different cities um, you know, I'll get on the ground with the local leaders foundation president. And like I said, I mean, they're just delighting in their city, but the perk that I'm referring to is when they kind of feel like the workday has ended and then we go someplace right to mm-hmm. eat. Um, and just, you know, like, Hey, I can't wait to take you to this restaurant. You've got to have this particular, you know, meal, or you've got to have this particular drink. I mean, it's just, it's just this sort of, kind of lustful loving of a piece of their city that I just sit back and go, I never get tired of it. Uh, and so it's been fun to participate in that. Yeah. 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 I, I've actually experienced in uh, what you're saying in a couple of ways with uh, some LF leaders who have uh, actually introduced me to parts of the city that were, I mean, kind of like I thought off limits for me, you know, because I mean, oh, you know how you sometimes just, find yourself on a, on a particular path. Like I know how to get here and there to the airport and back. And you don't even realize the, exactly. you know, the treasure of, of the neighborhoods. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's been great. That's, yeah, that that's exactly right. It's uh, it, it's, it's just wonderful to watch and uh, experience. Well, now when we talk about cities, of course, uh, I mean, we all have certain uh, places we've visited, but when we talk about the city, we're usually talking about New York City, and I always yeah. say that uh, uh, you know there are a few cities in the world. I, I'm certainly sure there are more, but um, that you can't really compare. Like I happen to live in the Seattle area, which I actually think feels a lot like San Francisco. It's it's on yeah. the water. It's it's hilly. It's yeah. got you know. Uh, I mean, it's got a similar vibe. Um, and then, but then sometimes you you know you go to a city and you think, well, there's this is incomparable. I mean, there isn't a place like this. Yeah. And I think uh, Jerusalem is one of those places where you just think, okay, the, you know, this is unique. And, and certainly yeah. uh, New York, I, I have had the chance to uh, live for a year in the Netherlands. And, um, and I happen to live in the, in the village where the, you know, the pilgrims, the guys with the big shoe buckles 
you know, came from. And <laughs> it was just uh, east of Leiden in a place called Leiderdorp. And what was really interesting is that uh, I didn't catch the the idea that, um, you know, when they first arrived, they decided to to put new Amsterdam in place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, in Amsterdam, one of the great uh, sort of suburbs or, uh, you know, assistant cities of of Amsterdam is ha- uh, Harlem. Harlem, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. so, you know, it, it was kind of cool to see how uh, the original structure of the city was supposed to be kind of a lookalike, and it did yeah. not turn out that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's... it's uh, so, again, I think everyone has probably heard this, you know, with LF, uh, we believe that cities, you know, to be living, breathing organisms, right? And everyone is is different. Having said that, you know, you're absolutely right, Rick, that there are maybe classes of cities that seem to resemble each other more than, than others. Um, and, you know, I think truth be told, you feel like, you know, New York sits in its own class, at some level. Um, I mean, even some of the cities now in China, um, you know, the Shanghai's and others, um, certainly there are hints of it, but still to this day, uh, I don't think there's been a a city that I've experienced personally uh, quite like it. And part of it, you know, every time I fly in there or, you know, take the train up from BC is is how it exists, um, right? With regard to, I mean, probably the wealthiest, you know, people in the world um, reside there in some way, shape or form, along with some of the poorest. And that Mm -hmm. somehow they have figured out a kind of coexistence that keeps the city, you know, thriving at some levels. Um, Mm -hmm. Just as a a personal side, I have had a good friend who way back in my young life days, his Christmas gift to me every year uh, was a trip for he and I to go to New York city. Hmm. And so we did that probably 10 years in a row, um, every year. And it was one week and he and I would just, you know, get on the streets. And the interesting thing about it was every time we went, we would stay in a different part of the city. Uh, and I, I oftentimes said, you know, I can't anymore refer to New York city as one sort of organic whole. I mean, if you're down in Soho, you know, you're having a very different experience than if you were up on the Upper East Side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're in a place like, you know, kind of the chic, you know, Upper West Side, um, you know, that's very different, you know, than a place like Greenwich Village. Um, so I, I feel like I've had this uh, opportunity to get to know this city in particular. And of course, all I'm talking about right there is one of the boroughs, Manhattan, right? But there's four others. Mm-hmm. And having been in, I think, almost every one of them now, again, it's just, it's it's jaw-dropping. It's bewildering. It's bafflement. It's beautiful. It's just, it's everything mixed into one. So um, it's been one of my great joys here over this last year and a half to actually see a leadership foundation uh, get established uh, in New York City. Yeah, that's uh, the Thrive Collective, and uh, it, that's exciting. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to sit down uh, and uh, get a chance to listen to Jeremy Del Rio from that local leadership foundation in New York mm-hmm. City, and uh, so we're excited about that. Um, maybe before we before we uh, launch into that that conversation, uh, let me just hit the the sidebar here for a second, because I want to talk about the year in giving. We have mentioned this in our previous podcast. We want to thank everyone 
who has uh, responded and and you know and contributed, especially uh, on the Generosity Tuesday that we've just come through. But also, we want to uh, just encourage those of you who haven't yet to you know to think about uh, supporting in a year-end financial contribution to uh, the Leadership Foundation. So. If you're listening to this podcast and you appreciate the work of LF throughout the world, then uh, we're asking you to concretely support the work. Also, uh, a lot of times what's, I think, kind of cool about a a podcast is it can travel. And uh, if you have a friend who you think um, would be interested in in being aware of uh, Leadership Foundations, this is one way to share that. And then then certainly they can uh, consider that as well. So again, if you you want to make a contribution it's easy to do just go to leadershipfoundations.org slash donate and every donation is 100 percent tax deductible and goes to fuel the remarkable leadership and long-lasting change in the cities throughout the world that we talk about in every one of our podcast episodes so dave why don't you uh introduce our listeners to jeremy del rio give us a little uh, sketch there i will do so rick uh the one thing i would maybe want to add to your uh, giving plug and thank you for that yeah. is that yeah. we have uh, actually heard from a couple uh, different people who have become interested in seeing a leadership foundation in their respective city as a result of listening to the uh, the podcast here. So for those of you that uh, are thinking that way, we would love to have more conversations with you. And uh, we've got a, a global staff that would be willing to get on the phone or a uh, you know, some kind of Zoom call to just begin to walk you through the steps of what it would mean to look and develop a leadership foundation in your respective city. So, yeah, that's a great idea. So that's another reason to forward the podcast. Perhaps mm-hmm. you know somebody who's a leader in a city, and yep. uh, you know they they might might want to consider that. Yeah, yeah. So let me let me take just a little bit of time to uh, kind of introduce Jeremy because it's it's actually a very enjoyable story. So. Um, I had heard about Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy, and if you're in the youth urban space, uh, Jeremy's a, a known uh, figure, but I had never met him. Uh, he had done some work with Larry Lloyd, who uh, was the founder of the Memphis Leadership Foundation and now works for the Global Office as Vice President of Network Impact. Uh, and so the other piece, of course, is that Bill Milliken uh, was involved and knew about Jeremy. And so all of that kind of coalesced where we had a, uh, a Zoom call one day to you know begin to think about this. And I, at one point, having not met Jeremy, said, hey, I said, you uh, really glad to meet you. You've heard a lot about you. Uh, what, what piqued your interest in Leadership Foundations? And he says, well, he says, you know, you all have contributed to kind of who I am. And I go, we have, and he goes, yeah. He says, do you remember, uh, you know, the program uh, uh, that the Northwest Leadership Foundation started called Vision Youth? I said, yeah, absolutely. That was in our partnership with World Vision. I said, and by the way, Jeremy, I said, I don't know if you know this piece, but we stole that lock, stock, and barrel from the Memphis Leadership Foundation and Howard Eddings and Larry Lloyd. He kind of laughed. He hadn't heard that piece, and I said, so how how are you connected? And he says, well. He says, when World Vision decided to take it, you know, to scale, he said, one of the places that World Vision was involved was in New York City. And we created a Vision Youth, they created a Vision Youth, um, you know, sort of program in New York City. And the whole idea, again, of Vision Youth was uh, making sub-awards to churches 
to help them hire youth pastors so that they could kind of do incarnational work. Hmm. And he said, um, I was working for my dad as a volunteer, as a youth worker. And all of a sudden we hear about this opportunity to get a grant uh, from World Vision uh, called Vision Youth to be a part of engaging kids. And he says, you know, at that point, he said, I had, you know, gone to law school, graduated of NYU law school, but my heart was, of course, you know, with young people on the Lower East Side, but the church, my dad's church just didn't have the margin to free me up to do that full time. He says, mm-hmm. so it was the Vision Youth Grant that got me, you know, kind of into this space in the first place. And it was just this wonderful moment, Rick. Wow, to, that is cool. You can realize how God uses. I had never met Jeremy, and uh, but uh, it was because of this program that we created at Northwest Leadership Foundation you know, way back in the uh, kind of late 90s uh, that he was a product of it. And he, Jeremy will probably say this in uh, the interview as well, that he uh, he's very proud that he was already a product of Leadership Foundations way before he ever thought about actually running the Leadership Foundation himself. So um, yeah, a couple of things about Jeremy. He's, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, gosh, fifth, sixth generation New Yorker uh, through and through. Uh, His dad has been a very significant pastor um, in in Manhattan, Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. Uh, He, again, like I said, uh, went off to law school, um, very bright and articulate, but just felt this this tug on his heart to do something in and around uh, youth. So gets the vision youth grant, becomes the full-time youth pastor at his dad's church. And then you know, begins to kind of look around the city. And uh, it's important to note that when you say that Jeremy is looking around the city, it's all five boroughs, uh, even though he lives in Manhattan, you know, um, it's it's all of them. And he recognizes that as the, uh, essentially the New York education budget is beginning to dip and get less and less money, the first casualty um, is, of course, the arts, extracurricular mm-hmm. activities. And so Jeremy came up with this wonderful idea about what would happen if we, as an organization, were able to engage the church to supply essentially the art programs that the school district was cutting out of their budget. Mm. And it was out of that kind of initial thrust that Thrive Collective was created and whereby their overall vision uh, is to try to remove um, the sense that any school uh, does not provide the arts uh, for their young people. Hmm. Um, They're now, I think, in close to 150 schools uh, throughout New York City. They are one of uh, a very small group that New York City as a city taps them on the shoulder to paint murals throughout the city. So they've done Mm -hmm. murals in the Bronx in Manhattan, in Brooklyn and Staten Island. I mean, you know, Queens. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I'm going to be careful when I say this, because of course I believe in every local leadership foundation is about right. Trying to help their city become more like a playground rather than a battleground. But, you know, it's always been metaphor ish, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense of like, you know, it's, hey, yeah, this program to help kids tutor a little bit. Jeremy is probably the closest one that's literally turning New York City into a playground 
by way of the arts. Mm. Um, it's just extraordinary. I had was there just this last October and had a chance to get out in the city with them. And you'll be, you know, driving down a particular street and all of a sudden you'll turn a corner and all of a sudden on the side of a building is this gargantuan mural that his students have painted. Um, and it's around things like civil rights heroes. Um, it's, you know, about, uh, you know, the, the hip hop artists that came from this particular neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're literally, Rick, I mean, just going around from, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood um, and creating these art expressions more, more often than not through murals, but even, you know, other forms as well. And it's, it's electrifying uh, to see it. And it's so creative. And it's something that Jeremy and I've talked about is, you know, is this again, something that could be replicated, you know, throughout the, uh, the LF network. So um, on top of all of that, he is just a wonderfully good human being. Um, and it's been a pleasure to really kind of get to know him now. And I can safely say that he is a, he's a good friend. So can't say enough good things about Jeremy Del Rio. Yeah. What a, what a great, uh, not only a brilliant idea, but the idea, uh, lived out that you could uh, celebrate, uh, people from particular neighborhoods with art and, and also kind of returning to almost the Renaissance where the, where the church was the the sponsor of the art of the artists, you know, and, uh, just, I think when that went away, uh, too many other things did as well, but I loved how you described that um, that uh, Jeremy started seeing the city, and that's one of the things we talked about is that you know yeah. when we uh, are on this journey to uh, to conceive of a city as a playground instead of a battleground, it it's, yeah. it is how you see it, and totally. what you can see that sometimes isn't there. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, a couple more things maybe is that you know at one point I was talking to Jeremy about you know in the midst of a place you know, that's got a lot of social, you know, needs. I mean, like, right. Your temptation would be like really a mural versus like a meal. Right. I mean, to, you know, create some kind of piece of art, you know, instead of assisting with some, you know, kind of life, you know, saving issue. And uh, Jeremy's answer was, he said, well, yeah, I mean, all those basic needs we also try to pay attention to, but those are all premised on, is this place worth living for? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was just such a great statement, right? That that you can lose, I think, the forest through the trees at times with these overwhelming social needs. If you don't continue to think about, yes, let's meet the social needs, but they've almost first got to have some sense of why would I want my social needs met in the first place, mm-hmm. right? What is that vision of life and beauty. Um, you know, I think I've said this to you before, Rick, that, uh, that of all people, uh, former Pope uh, himself, Benedict, at one level was reflecting on the contribution of the church, you know, to society. And, you know, Benedict being Benedict, right? Here's this top shelf uh, theologian that's written enormous amounts of books on theology and doctrine and he was asked the question, he says, well, what at the end of the day is, is the church's contribution to the world? And, you know, if, if you had followed Benedict's career, what you're expecting him to do is begin to walk through some doctrine of, you know, the immaculate conception of Mary or, you know, 
uh, high Christology around, you know, the Christ. And he paused and then he said, yeah, probably two things. And already, right, your, your ears are perking up. It's like, really? You got it down to two things? And then he says, the saints and beauty. Mm-hmm. And it was just this, again, kind of stunning moment for me, Rick. One, the humility, I think, you know, to, to articulate that. But secondly, that, yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's this huge deposit of beauty, right, that the church you know, has, I think, been able to hold on to and point us to with regard to, okay, as you meet these societal needs, you know, keep your eye at some level on this beauty that surrounds us because that's actually what makes life worth living. Apart mm-hmm. from that, who cares? Um, yeah. Well, I, I told Jeremy that story, you know, um, and said, so, you know, Jeremy, you're kind of like, you know, former Pope, Benedict, right? Yeah, you both articulated <laughs> exactly the same theological concept, but from two very different vantage points. So, well, and even when you talk about those murals, Dave, the the idea, just think about this: that when we uh, most people would drive through a neighborhood or, a, or you know, as part of a city, and they would see buildings. That's yeah, right. I saw these. I saw all these buildings, and Jeremy sees canvas, and you know just that right there is, is a, a different yeah, way to look at it and uh and and then i think not only is it um obvious to everyone that the city is speaking you know with this art but here is uh someone who's given the artists you know uh it's the it's the canvas that the artists have needed as well so it's just Perfect. it's like it's a yep. really really great so i really look forward to to hearing jeremy del rio and so uh let's let's uh, tap into that conversation Absolutely. City of mine, how I love, how I love the city of mine. It never gets me down. City of mine, how I love, how I love the city of mine. Jeremy Del Rio. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Thrive Collective in New York City. When I imagine New York City as a playground, I'm inspired by the idea of intergenerational communities of people filling streets that are safe. Um, I I hear the sounds of laughter. Uh, I smell the fragrances of a feast. Um, probably grilled on an open flame. Uh, I hear the the joy of kids playing games and and enjoying festivities and entertainment and music and dancing. Um, I see communities uh, coming out of their homes and engaging with each other in open spaces. Uh, I see spaces that are beautiful that have been restored. Um, that are filled with art and vibrancy and uh, everything that makes a community feel welcoming. Um, That's what a a playground feels like to me. Uh, In those spaces, there are activities that engage people. You know, it's, it's not just being entertained, but it's drawing people in and eliciting the best of themselves. Uh, in all kinds of fun, festive, fragrant ways. 
And, uh, and it's fun when you get to glimpse that and not just dream about it, but the experience of it uh, creates these taste and see that it is good moments and it leaves you wanting the sequel. So all of my grandparents were immigrants to this country and they landed in Brooklyn, New York. My mom's parents came from Norway. My dad's parents came from Puerto Rico. Uh, my parents were born in, in the city. They met and fell in love with Brooklyn. And, uh, and my unique ethnic blend makes me a New Yorker. Other than my brothers, I've met one person in my life who was equal parts Norwegian and Puerto Rican. Um, I wear that proudly because that's part of the, the beauty of our city, uh, that, that an, the ch children of Puerto Rican and Norwegian immigrants could meet and fall in love and begin a family that has endured in the city uh, is a beautiful thing. My parents began a ministry in New York City in 1982 when I was eight years old. I'm the oldest of three boys. Uh, the, the ministry was called Abounding Grace Ministries, and it was inspired by a very literal reading of Romans 5.20, which says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Uh, they felt called as evangelists to their city, the city that they loved, where they were born and raised. And their theory on how to experience grace that abounds was to ask the NYPD where the worst drug spots were in New York, believing that if they found a lot of drug trafficking, they find a lot of sin, and by extension, God's abounding grace. And so in 1982, the police directed them to two street corners in the Lower East Side of Manhattan that at the time were the heroin capital of uh, of the city and arguably the country um and that's where we came right so the the metaphor of a battleground is very familiar to me because uh, the lower east side in the 80s was a war zone and you had all of the related issues that come along with heroin this is before crack obviously the crack epidemic brought a whole nother wave of violence and and uh, aggression, um, but that's where we went and kind of the context of ministry where I grew up. In 1992, they began a church. Uh, we didn't know at the time that was called church planting. That phrase hadn't become trendy yet, but we started a church because most of the people uh, that they reached through the ministry were street people. Um, and they found it difficult to acclimate to churches. And so we created a church where they would feel embraced and welcomed. Um, in 1994, while I was in college, I was drafted by my parents to start the youth group at our church. In 96, that youth group began a, a youth center and after school and summer camp program and a public housing project down the street. Um, for 15 years, we operated that location directly across the street from a public K through eight school, which was the primary feeder of students into our programs. And uh, in 2006-ish, we began the transition from 
being a good neighbor that was across the street to uh, we recognized at that point we'd be a lot more effective if we were in the building. And so that was the beginning of the journey towards what we now call Thrive Collective. Thrive Collective creates hope and opportunity uh, primarily through arts, sports, and mentoring in and around public schools. We do that in a couple of ways. Uh, We are a direct service provider of those programs currently in about 50 schools a year. Um, And then we also are a matchmaker for other ministry partners and nonprofits that provide supplemental services in about 200 schools around the city. And so um, in since 2014, when we made a full commitment to arts and mentoring, uh, we've served over 15,000, actually about 18,000 students. Um, Our murals program is our largest arts program. Uh, All the arts that we teach are project-based learning. We place resident artists in buildings and essentially function as uh, the art department for schools that don't have arts programs or as supplemental instruction for schools that have minimal arts programs. Um, But it's all project-based learning. Our murals program is our largest program. Since 2014, we've completed over 225 murals, um, somewhere around 100,000 square feet of public art. We've had about 13 or 14,000 students in the murals program specifically. And, um, And it's a lot of fun to see. Um, it's expanded beyond schools. We do a lot of community walls now and community collaborations uh, with different city agencies and, and commercial partners as well as school partners. But what's underlying it always um, are these collaborative transformational projects uh, where it, we take this abstraction of transformation and make it very tangible. And so it it elevates a sense of possibility and expectation because the community achieved the impossible together. Um, so I, I'll go way back to the first one. Uh, it was a complete one-off. That youth center that I described was operating. Um, And in 2007, we realized that if we were in the building, we'd be a lot more effective. And we received a grant to do a beautification project inside that school. Um, We decided uh, with the help of some artists that we knew that we would make it a collaborative mural production in the schoolyard. The school approved it. It was amazing. We did it that summer. Um, Over the next three years, the school uh, literally became an A-rated school. It transformed. Um, There was more to it, obviously, than the mural, um, but they could trace the transformation in the building to that summer. And, And when the students came back, um, that following school year. And there was a sense of uh, how the mural helped 
elevate a sense of school pride, a sense of community, a sense of achievement. Um, and it became a, a symbolic transformation, but more than a symbol, because it was a literal transformation of the space. Um, that was the inspiration for what we're doing now. So that project that at the time was a complete one-off, nobody that was involved in the project thought we'd ever do it again. Um, but it, it inspired not only us directly, but this larger city. Um, and then I'll give a, another one that's more recent. Um, <clears throat> this summer, uh, actually, the so back in the end of April, the city, the Department of Education called us uh, with as part of the COVID academic recovery money that the city received, they were expanding summer school um, and they wanted for the first time ever to include arts in summer school because they knew that during the quarantine, students had no real arts programming. Uh, when they were quarantined in home in their homes. And so as part of summer school, they were creating immersive art making experiences for summer school students. And they they called us to pre-qualify us to be one of the main vendors for the summer rising program is what they called it. Um, for summer rising, we ended up uh, facilitating projects in 11 and 12 schools citywide, mural projects specifically. Um, and one of those was uh, at a school that's what we call a transfer school. They're basically high schools for overage, under-accredited students. And, uh, and so we worked with this school in Brownsville. Um, and in that process, uh, the school administrators and, and the students reflected on how it became an opportunity for them to tell the community at large what how they perceived their neighborhood. And the, they painted that one on a handball court wall, so literally in a playground space. Um, and it became this very aspirational vision of not only how they see their futures, but how they see the community and the resilience and the hope of the community. That particular school, um, the principal of that school was one of the first educators in New York to die from COVID. And so she was memorialized as part of the larger mural. Um, but they did that because it was all about resilience. You know, and so this metaphor, I mean, this was this summer um, and to see the, you know, the direct, the, the consistency from the first mural to the 220th mural, right? To see kids recognize that there's something almost prophetic when, when a community is able to develop a shared vision imagine what that looks like and then bring it to life the the way that it restores and affirms their dignity and and the beauty that already existed in the neighborhood
that that for me i think is really a driver for how thrive collective operates right whenever we engage a school or a neighborhood or community partners um, we train our staff that in the neighborhood our our first job before we teach before we work with kids before we do any of that we enter into a community as treasure hunters right we're not walking into the neighborhood to prescribe what the neighborhood needs our job is to listen well um, and discern and see and sometimes it's really obvious the beauty that already exists and then take whatever we bring in service of that right so how can we enhance and shine and accentuate the beauty that already exists right the public guard is one of the ways we do that it's not the only way that we do it but that that posture of humility and um, celebration of the the treasure that already exists in the neighborhood it very much drives uh, why we do what we do, how we do what we do, and I think is the real reason why the impact is so meaningful. This past spring, responding to the rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans, uh, a number of our artists and our students were directly impacted. And, and in solidarity, the rest of our collective wanted to support and figure out how we could, um, again, shine a light, not on the anti-crime kind of approach, but what do we stand for? And so we worked with some of our artists to conceptualize uh, a messaging around the antidote to hate crime is to spread love. And we worked with one artist in particular who is uh, biracial, Korean-American, and, and Latina-American. So, um, but was particularly moved um, based on some of her own experiences with hate crimes. And, uh, and so she approached us with a, a concept for a project um, and so we helped source a wall. Uh, we ended up doing um, a, a project that's about 2,000 square feet. It's 30 feet tall by, I think, 70-something feet wide. Um, but it's on the side of a Chinese-American church. And it's adjacent to a city-owned uh, lot, a vacant lot that is managed by the Department of Environmental Protection because of what's underneath the land, not what's above the land. And so that project uh, forced a whole nother layer of cross-sector collaboration um, because we, you know, as an arts organization, we had the artists and the wherewithal to produce the mural, but working with an immigrant Chinese church, um, which immigrant churches generally tend to be a little more conservative, and the idea of giving a side of their building to a public art piece um, is a stretch. It's not something that happens all the time. Uh, but because of the, the nature of how this land was managed, it required the cooperation of four different city agencies. Um, and to make it timely, given the issue, 
to get four agencies to turn around permits within 30 days, um, you know, is a, a major miracle, not a minor miracle. Um, so that project was was huge. Uh, it ultimately the the different city agencies came together. You know, the church community came together. Um, the mayor's wife uh, really drove the effort from inside City Hall. Uh, her staff were the the connectors that helped to pull a lot of the levers. And so we had the full support of the mayor's office. Um, his wife came out and and uh, supported the project. And then we celebrated the project with uh, one of the first approved block parties post-COVID. And so there, there too, we had to get some uh, permissions to close the street and turn it into a block party. Um, but it all worked out and it was an incredible picture of, you know, the faith community, the secular agencies, different artists, government officials, business community coming together in common cause. And to see the literally the street transformed into a playground, the wall is on one of the busiest um, thoroughfares in Manhattan. So it's seen, you know, on an annual basis by millions of people. Um, so it's uh, it's pretty exciting to have participated in that project. You know, we, we I think as human beings, we're hardwired um, to, to recognize what sets us apart from everybody else. And in our culture, um, we just turn that flame up on high every day. And so we are in an, in an age where everybody is, is predisposed to differentiation, to competition, to um, recognizing and feeding and fueling all the dividers that keep us apart. To develop a shared vision around anything is so much more complicated uh, than status quo American culture requires. And so when a community does the hard work to figure out what they agree on around any issue, it's worth memorializing. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I love the public art that we do, because it by its very nature, it's collaborative. And the designs that get produced are composites of many different stakeholders, many different points of view, you know, many different interpretations um, around whatever the messaging is. And so when it comes together in that way, what better way to remind the community of what's possible when we see past our differences to make something magical happen? Okay, I want to move to New York City. Uh, you know, Dave, I've dabbled. I've dabbled in the murals, and uh, have you? Yeah, well, nice. you know, I mean, uh, 
you know, for the grandkids, you know, um, so that's, but I'm saying I would, I would just be happy to just carry the, you know, carry the palette around, you know, and then yeah. refresh the paint. I mean, but wow, what a, what a great, great expression of leadership foundations in the city, in this, this, uh, yeah. this particular nation. And uh, again, um, every time we, we get to hear from a local leadership foundation, uh, it's just kind of inspiring, you know, because there, you know, even though every city, we said this earlier, every city is different, but at the same time, we're all living in whatever space we're living. That's our city. And so yeah. there's just so many great takeaways. Yeah, no. Yeah. And like I said earlier, Rick, I mean, so having had a chance to actually be there with him, um, you know, similar to you, it's like, yeah, I was ready to pack my bags and, and move to New York City and uh, you know, it's something as simple as carrying the palette of these artists uh, that he has curated is just, uh, again, it's extraordinary. Uh, and I, again, I could go on and on about all of the ramifications of this, you know, work that they're doing in the city. But uh, like I said, it's 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 not metaphorical for Jeremy. He is right. excited. Yeah. yeah, he's going to do his part and turn that city into a literal playground. And it's happening. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, we've talked, Dave, before, and, uh, you know, this is kind of one of the soapboxes I jump on, but uh, I really think that part of the uh, part of the way people think when they see a battleground is it's they, they have a huge collection of problems. They, they do a lot of problem uh, yep. kinds of, kind of, I hear that word a lot, and, you know, they're, and they're looking for solutions to problems, problem solution. But then when you, when you are with artists, they don't consider uh, a work of art a problem. It's a project. That's right. And, and they're going to create something by, you know, adding to it, you know, and I just think that uh, as a kid, I remember that whenever, you know, I had to uh, go in a math class, I, I knew at some point it was going to be uh, reductive. We're going to reduce something to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's what's so great about art. And, uh, and I, I kind of I'm a big proponent of the fact that, uh, you know, the Bible is not a math book. It's an art that's book. Right. And, uh, right. and so I think that what uh, Jeremy talks about it perfectly fits you know, what, what Jesus was about. And uh, so that's, that's fantastic. Now at the end of our podcast, we like to have someone give us a recommendation, which is, uh, you know, something that helps them more clearly see the city as a playground that might open their eyes uh, and see the city more like God sees it. Uh, a lot of folks have, have offered books or experiences or movie clips or, you know, anything or a mural, but uh, uh, this is great because Jeremy's gonna, he's gonna offer uh, his recommendation for that. This is Jeremy Del Rio. My recommendation for people that want to be change agents in their communities and really pursue the vision of a city as playground uh, is to remember that when the creator of humanity chose to engage us, he became like us. Right. We're in the season of Advent. We anticipate the and celebrate the incarnation of our creator where he becomes flesh and blood and literally moves into our neighborhoods and indwells our communities. Um, Philippians chapter two paints a beautiful portrait of what that should look like when we engage our neighborhoods in the same way. Right, Philippians chapter two tells us that our attitudes should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not think equality with God something to be held on to with a closed fist, but he released it, became nothing, taking on the form of a servant, even unto death on a cross. 
right? And, and when you think about the incarnation, the fact that um, everything about Jesus' birth was scandalous, uh, his unmarried teenage mother's pregnancy was a capital crime. The only reason she was not murdered was because the father claimed him as his own, right? Joseph, which meant that Joseph now was scandalized. He was presumed to be the biological father, even though he was the adoptive father, right? And and so he grows up in this space, but he travels across the desert on a donkey's back, Um, He's born in unsanitary conditions. He survives genocide as a political refugee in Egypt. He only returns to his homeland after the genocidal tyrant dies. At that point, they could move anywhere and they move into a community that has a reputation for producing no good thing, right? He's, they live under the uh, oppressive thumb of an occupying army, right? Like he lives in all of the scandal and adversity. Um, and when it's time for him to uh, publicly disclose who he is and why he's done this, he chooses a wedding, you know, where he turns water into wine and it's a celebration, it's a party. And when the moms bring the kids and the disciples are too busy, he says, let the children come to me. Don't, don't resist them. Right. And he engages people and play and joy. Um, that's what it means to be present. That's what it means to be engaged. If we want to be about the business of transforming cities into playgrounds, it starts with that kind of presence, that kind of humility that's going to be part of the neighborhood that's going to be in solidarity with the community. Um, And then from that place of humility, joy flows naturally, right? Play is possible again. Intergenerational connection happens um, because we're modeling the same kind of love and generosity that Jesus provides. Well, thanks to Jeremy Del Rio, New York City. Mm-hmm. Thanks to you, Dave, for this great episode. Thank you, Rick. Uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, sitting down and talking again, because we are going to lean into the idea of the poetry of the city. And that sort of, I think, is a, a great connection with with uh, this podcast when we've talked about um, the incredible art that's being expressed in New York City by the Leadership Foundation there. So I look forward to that conversation, Dave. It'll be great. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick.